0: Well, good evening. It is good to see you again this evening as we do begin a new series. Our new series is entitled Ecclesia. Ecclesia being the Greek word for one of the Greek words. It's not the only one, but one of the Greek words that is used for uh, the church. That is the title. You are the Ecclesia, the church, and so we begin this series because there is a lot of confusion in our world today about what is the church. There are those who feel that the church is a help group, not much different than some sort of a resource for addicts, maybe. There are those who feel that the church is a social club, and maybe they don't declare it as such, but they live by it as such. There are those who declare that the church is all about consumers, that it's all about you when you come to the church in fact that is a serious problem we see in modern church music and modern church trends is it's all about you do you not feel comfortable and if you don't let's make it comfortable for you this is what we're seeing in our world today It has even caught the attention of twitter form well x formerly twitter if you follow those kinds of things uh in fact, there was an argument that, and I love it when a pastor says like three words. He said a few more than this, but not many more. A pastor says just a few words and it starts a firestorm when I'm not that pastor. So, uh, that's, another pastor starting that, I can go, amen, as long as it's not me. Uh, but John Piper started this. He wrote this in a post posted on Saturday, September 30th. He said, can we reassess whether Sunday coffee sipping in the sanctuary fits Oh, it already started some, I hear it. We've already started a a debate here as uh, that was something that he wrote, Pastor John Piper. Of course, we disagree in many things theologically, but he's written, uh, one of the things about certain pastors is sometimes you're like, yes, right on, and other times you're like, what are you doing staring at the grass in right field? (laughs) Uh, It's a baseball analogy uh, because... Sometimes that's where Piper's at. Uh, But I've appreciated this in the sense that it started some debate. It started some discussion. And he posted this on Saturday, September 30th, and he was thinking specifically about his church fellowship. But by writing it on X, it made it around the world, made it so great that I read it actually first on two other news sources, and eventually I read it on Fox News that he was. Uh, had stated this statement, and I couldn't believe the news that it made. This was for his own congregation, and here it is uh, going viral. Uh, The question that he's really asking is, what is the church? What do we do when we gather together as the church? And so through a series of things that have happened recently, we're starting this series. This series is going to be unique and different. It's different than anything that I have done while I've been here in the last three years. And part of the reason it's going to be different is the three pastors are going to preach it. It's not just going to be my sermon series. It's going to be that which Pastor Mike will preach a message on and Pastor Toonstrow will preach a message on as we work our way through this theme of ecclesia. What is the church? What is the church? There's been some interesting statistics out and data always is slow about coming. And so I'm going to try to lay a foundation for this series for you tonight. I'm going to do so through a couple different ways. I'm going to give you some stats, some things that we know from research that has come out. Some of it is delayed, which is where I'm going to start. Some of it is trends that we see taking place, and some of it will begin to help us to lay the foundation for where we're going to go. And then we're going to have five purposes of the church. And so we've got a lot of work to do tonight. So the first few statistics, uh, this one comes uh, by Lifeway Research. Lifeway is a Southern Baptist uh, research entity, and so uh, they are part of the SBC, and this is what they have discovered. They said about 4,500 Protestant churches closed in 2019. That's Protestant churches, not churches, Protestant churches. Um, So that covers a wide gamut even then. 4,500 Protestant churches closed in 2019, which was the last year that data was available, with about 3,000 churches opening. Now, why is that startling? Because that's the first time in the history of our country that more closed than opened. It's the first time since statistics were being kept that that would be the case. Um, And so that is recognized then that that was pre-pandemic. And so here's a couple numbers that kind of get you thinking about post-pandemic. They said this, last year, in the last three years, all signs are pointing to a continued pace of closures probably similar to 2019 or higher, as has been the really rapid rise in American individuals who say they are not religious. These are the nuns, those who have no affiliation to any kind of religious system. So because of that, they are saying that this is going to continue. Moving ahead to some different numbers, this comes from the Survey Center on American Life at the University of Chicago. It said, Protestant pastors reported that typical church attendance is only 85% of pre-pandemic levels, while research indicates that in the spring of 2022, 67% of Americans reported attending church at least once a year, compared to 75% pre-pandemic that's a startling number, because we've seen the decline over the years, but to see that kind of decline, that kind of significant decline, is truly significant. And Also, the Pew Research found this. A study by Pew Research found that a number of Americans who identified as Christian was 64%. By the way, that is a very broad term. <laughs> I believe that number to be far lower than this, actually, but... Uh, For the sake of this study, the study indicated that the number of Americans who identified as Christians was 64% in 2020, with 30% of the population being classified as religiously unaffiliated, and about 6% of Americans identifying with Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. Since the 1990s, large numbers of Americans have left Christianity to join the growing ranks of U.S. adults who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. And they say the accelerated trend is reshaping the U.S. religious landscape. In 1972 so remember the number I just gave you 64 percent in, in uh, 2020. In 1972, 92 percent of Christians said they, or 92 percent of Americans said they were Christians. So from 2022 at 64 percent, going back to 1972 to 92 percent. Pew reported that by 2070, that number will drop to below 50%, and the number of religious, un, religiously unaffiliated Americans, or nuns, will probably outnumber those adhering to Christianity. So there will be more nuns in America, not Catholic nuns, you understand. Those unaffiliated with any sort of religious system, there will be more of them than there are of you who declare themselves to be Christians. Now, I share these numbers not for the sense of shock value, although there is a shock factor to them. And I don't share these numbers for complaints, but to cause us to be alert that things are changing. And we're seeing it, at least in one avenue in our world today, as a misdefinition of the church. We no longer know what the church is and what it is to be doing. We have instead substituted it for our own consumeristic desires and ambitions, and we've made church about us. And so the series is really designed to help us understand what the church is. And what does she do? Why does she exist? It is not our purpose in these few weeks that we're going to be moving through, and uh, the end of this series is still somewhat nebulous. (laughs) So you say, well, how long is the series going to be? I don't know, but it's going to be several weeks. We're going to at least go through the next several weeks, and the reason why, I'm going to be honest, the reason why is because I have a really big study that I'm trying to develop for Sunday night. Uh, So pray for me in that study. It is a deep and intense study. I had intended to start it this week, and I just... It's going to take several more weeks to get there. So this is a study in between studies, and a very vital study nonetheless. So we recognize that it's not designed to be exhaustive. We're not going to study every element of every part of every message. But we want to contemplate how the Lord is working through his church, because Christ said to his disciples that he would be the one who would build his church And that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That is a significant statement, which means, actually, that the church is on the offense. That the church is gaining ground, despite what we read in the newspapers and in these research items. So, it is not our purpose to be exhaustive. It is our purpose to understand that Christ is still building his church, and we want to be a part of that effort. We do not want to build the church that satisfies, put your name in the blank, because if we become that church, you become the object of worship, which is blasphemy. And so, we want to be found careful, diligent, faithful students of the word of God, as we consider tonight five critical purposes of the church, which form the structure of the church's activities. So tonight in our study, Ecclesia, what is the purpose of the church? As we prepare our hearts for that, I'm going to tell you it's time to put on the running shoes on your fingertips because we're going to move through the pages of Scripture, bouncing back and forth between Old and New Testament, but spending considerable amounts of time in 1st and 2nd Corinthians and 1st Timothy, that's going to be where we're going to spend a lot of our time tonight, but be ready because we're going to be bouncing back and forth between several passages. And in order to prepare our hearts for this evening, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we have read some news here in the last few moments that has been conducted by well-known, well-established research agents who indicate that the church seems to be, by all intents and purposes, slipping in the American culture. Lord, as we look around those who call themselves Christians, we know that that is a very wide term and the church is most likely nowhere near the numbers that they have indicated. But it is not our goal to be discouraged or depressed by these statistics. It is our goal to understand the purpose of the church and to be realigned according to the pages of Scripture and what you have said about the Bride of Christ Lord, there may be things that we need to repent of, and I'm certain that there are, as we think of the church and the way that she is conducting herself, and that we have participated in those means that are selfish, self-centered, and arrogant. And so we want to look in with renewed vision. We we don't want to be appeased. We want to glorify you. So because of this effort, we pray that you would give us understanding hearts tonight, that we would understand your word and faithfully apply the truth that we have to learn from it. Lord, we do recognize that there is an d- enormous drive, tremendous pressure to conform to the self-autonomous individual who desires to have it their way right away. So I pray that tonight we would dig into these five purposes and being confronted as we do so by those areas that we have neglected or abandoned or forsaken or just flatly disobeyed. May we repent of those things. May we be those who dig deeply into your word that, to seek to understand what it is that the church should be about. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for this evening. I pray that your word would be boldly spoken tonight, that you'd give me the words to speak, and that your people would hear your word And apply the truths that they learn to -to day-to-day living. That they would truly be the church as they depart from here. So Lord, we love you and we thank you for this evening hour. We pray your blessing upon our time together. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we turn in, your outline is five points in your bulletin. And so we turn in the bulletin to the first point, a very high view of God. Now I will say this. As we get into what is the purpose of the church, tonight we are establishing really some structure, and I have borrowed parts of outlines throughout this study because there are a great many scholars who have done enormous work on this subject. And so there's no need to recreate the wheel, and so I've borrowed these phrases from two different authors for us tonight and kind of mashed them together, but I just want you to recognize that these are not... Uh, unique to me and ascribe appropriately that others have participated in this and we don't want if we were to be those who came up with something brand new all the time you would have a problem if no one else is saying what you're saying you're probably a heretic that's probably what if you're brand new and say nobody has ever said this uh, go back and study again (laughs) Uh, there's, there's a lot to learn here, and we recognize that God has gifted the church an enormous number of scholars, and so we're not recreating the wheel. We're just simply applying some skeletal truths tonight, and they're going to seem a little bit disjointed because they are really a framework. I was a builder for a long time, and one of the, the frustrating things is you've worked all day, and all you have is just the framing. The framing doesn't look like much. You can't really tell, if, unless you really know what you're looking at, you really can't tell the form and the shape of the structure that you're building until you put sheeting on it. And then you get siding on it, and you put windows in and doors in and, and put the, the porch where it goes and the deck where it goes, and you begin to say, wow, that looks like a house. The inside may be empty, but outside it looks like a house. But when the structure is still here, you say, well, that seems a little bit disjointed. That's where we're going to be when we're done this evening. We're going to have the structure there. And then over the next several weeks, we're going to be adding all of the other components. And we will, Lord willing, and if the Lord tarries, we will apply the inside furnishings as well. And so that is how we're going to move through. Tonight, we're going to deal with the structure and the first the purpose of the church is that we must have a high view of God. We must have a high view of God. The goal of ministry is the glory of God. That is our chief purpose. We are to bring glory to God. Why does the church exist? It is a popular idea in secular society that the church exists to help people feel better about themselves. In fact, I would dare say even if you were to pose that question somewhat sneakily among us, there would be a number of people within our fellowship that would say that I want my church to make me feel better. We would probably leave here saying that many Sundays. I remember a church that Lisa and I had attended that uh, the pastor was preaching through Ecclesiastes, Uh, there was no Sunday that we would walk out of the auditorium saying, wow, I feel better about myself. In fact, every Sunday for four years, and that was probably a little excessive, but for four years, he preached through the book of Ecclesiastes, and every Sunday you went, (coughs) as you left. There's a balance there, certainly, but it is not our responsibility as a church body to make you feel better about yourself. In fact, there's a lot of times where we want you, as church leaders, to really be solemn and consider the sinfulness that you possess. And Steve mentioned a little while ago that the pastor's job is stressful, the pastor's job is stressful because we're all sinners. We're all sinners. There's my sin, and I'm worse than you could imagine that I am. And there's your sin, and you're worse than I could imagine you are. We recognize that we are sinners. So the church does not exist as secular society believes that the church exists. We don't exist for The feeling better about the ooey gooey warm and fuzzy elements of church that's not why we exist now there should be blessings in the church there should be days that you do walk out of the fellowship saying praise the lord that i have been with god's people today we should walk out of here every sunday feeling that way some sundays we're going to feel better about it than others and so we recognize that great work it's also essential to understand that the church uh, is not a parrot church organization. The church is not that which is some sort of organization that is to conduct any sort of business. When we think of our ministry down at Mel Trotter, we recognize Mel Trotter is an organization, and there are elements of ministry that do take place there, but that is not a church. We can think of many others. You can think of agencies that uh, maybe you have or continue to send money to, and they're not a church, they're an organization. We must recognize that the church is an organism, it's living, it's active, and that it teaches one another to observe all that Christ has commanded us. That is what Matthew 28 says to us. That we are to teach one another, and to encourage one another. That's the process of both making disciples and being disciples that we have in the Great Commission of the Church in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. We are an organism that teaches each other to observe all that Christ has commanded us. We are to grow in Christ as individuals and corporately. And we are to bring the Father glory. And in order to do that, we're actually going to start in the book of Proverbs. If you'll turn there, Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 I would strongly encourage you if you have not marked this in your bible or if you've not memorized this memorize this start here if you get nothing else start here Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight Later on we're going to have a class on prolegomena That's our adult Bible fellowship, which will be one of our classes. You say, what in the world is prolegomena? Wait until you see it spelled. You're going to say, what is that? A prolegomena simply means first things, beginning things. This is the beginning right here. What is the beginning? Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. If you believe that the church is a self-help organization, fear the Lord. If you believe that the church is all about you, you are not fearing the Lord, you are fearing you, fear the Lord. You're going to hear me throughout the years of ministry that we share together, you're going to hear me say often the phrase that I'm about to repeat for you. So it may be something that you write down or just wait until next time I say it. But if you have a fear of man, then you do not have a zero tolerance of the fear of man. You have a zero tolerance of the fear of God. You cannot have a fear of man and a fear of God at the same time. You must have a zero tolerance of the fear of man. You will not put up with the fear of what others think. Your only question is, what does God think? Now, that impacts the way that you live among one another. You're not some hermit that says, I'm going to refuse to interact with people because I fear God. That's not what's being said. There is a balance because you have to be among God's people. But in that process, you're going to say, I have a zero tolerance of the fear of man and an awesome fear of God. That's where it starts. And we begin to understand then that the foundation rests on that truth. If you have a fear of God, that is, Solomon says to us, that is the beginning of wisdom. And by the way, there are other passages. So if you think of other passages in Proverbs that speak of the fear of God, I strongly encourage you to underline those as well. There are a number of them. In fact, I would even encourage you to read the entire book of Proverbs, and every time you run into the fear of the Lord, underline it. And then go back and reflect. This is where Solomon starts. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, how does the foundation of the church rest there? Let's turn over, thinking of these truths, let's turn over then to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As I said, we're going to be jumping around quite a bit this evening. So we're going to put all these pieces together. Don't get frustrated by the skeletal structure. We'll put all the pieces together, Lord willing, uh, together. And notice this, because we're talking first things. And verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says this, and verse 11. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, I'm building this foundation. And as I'm building on this foundation, I'm building on it. And the foundation is Christ. The beginning is Christ. So Paul is even using my analogy of the structure being formed and Devised, and he says that I'm just building on it. What an important structure, then, where Paul will say in the verses that follow that your works will be judged upon how you built on that foundation. How did you do with the first things? Did you fear God above the fear of man? And did you build on another foundation? Because notice, that was verse 11. Verse 12 says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. You, believer, listen carefully, will not be judged based upon how comfortable you were in attending the church that you attended. You will not... Be judged for how comfortable you lived your life. How prosperous or lack of prosperity there was in your life. You will be judged on how well you built on the foundation that is in Christ Jesus. And we know as Paul is Moving all the way through, someday, Lord willing, we'll get to the study in 1 Corinthians, which is another study I've got in the back of my mind. Uh, The study in 1 Corinthians, and as we go through here, we recognize Paul is talking about the church. That it's built in Jesus Christ. And so the question is, how well did you build in the body of Christ for the sake of Christ? By... His definition, not yours. And again, we're reminded of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. We've been given a very clear directive. The very clear directive is, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. So the building of disciples is evangelism, and the teaching is discipleship how well are you building on the foundation? You may not be an evangelist. You may not be one who has an active role in the various pieces of discipleship, but are you training someone else in the body of Christ? Every single believer should be doing so. In order to build on this, we have to recognize then, and moving ahead to James, I want to tie this together a little bit for us, and that's a little bit what you do. So I remember my dad, when, when we uh, began to build cabins, we were standing immense walls, walls that were 30, 40 feet long, and 10 feet tall, and two by six walls, and there was like four of us standing these walls. Well, then what do you do with the wall? You stood this giant wall, and it's a giant kite now. How do you anchor that? So let me put some anchor points down for us. We just stood an immense wall, Let me put some anchor points down for us. Let's turn over to James, James chapter 4, as we begin to put some anchor points to this. James 4, verses 8 through 10. The scripture says this, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Here is our tie. It's tying it back to the church. We understand. We're beginning to establish the structural elements. Foundation is Christ. We're building onto it. We're building onto it with a fear of God. We're listening to what God is saying. We stood this wall now of having a high view of God. And the tie for us is, the anchor point is this. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then skipping down to verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do the exact opposite of what the world says. The world says exalt yourself. Take care of number one. Satisfy your own cravings. Isn't that what God would want you to do? We looked into that idea this morning in our study. In 1 Thessalonians, isn't that the same lie that Satan deceived Eve with? Wouldn't God want you to eat of that fruit. What is God withholding from you? We must have a high view of God. If the church held a high view of God, we would draw near to God. We would be humbled before God. And I find it interesting that there was so much debate then. I go back to what Piper did this past uh, two weeks ago or a week and a half ago. Why is that even a debate in the church? If we hold a high view of God, Why is coffee such a debate? Perhaps we don't hold as high a view of God as we thought. I'm not saying anything, I'm not making this a point, by the way. I'm just saying that maybe we hold too high a view of ourselves, too low a view of God. Piper is saying that when you walk into the auditorium, you must be serious, somber, and not distracted by your coffee. Now, who knows? There could have been somebody in his sanctuary, in his auditorium the week before who spilled hot coffee on themselves in the middle and went all charismatic on him. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what happened that would institute this kind of thing, but it is interesting to notice how big of a deal it made. We must take God seriously. And in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's not your job to exalt yourself. It's God's job to exalt you. Are you letting Him do that? Or are you afraid that you got missed in the exaltations? Because when we begin to exalt ourselves, we have a very low view of God, a very high view of ourselves, and we say, Isn't it my turn to be exalted, Lord? Let me just help you out with that. And then who do we worship and serve? ourselves ourselves so we must have a very high view of God we're going to move on we've got five of these and we've got like 15 minutes left so uh, a very high view of God we must also have a high view of the authority of scripture and I'm going to ask you a question where are you fed where are you fed in an age of podcasts YouTube TikTok other social media, books, Kindle, radio, where are you fed? What are you consuming? 2 Timothy, let's turn over there. I said we would be there and we're going to turn there now. 2 Timothy chapter 3. As we close out the chapter here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, notice what the scripture says, and I started here on purpose, and I'll even jump back to verse 14, because Paul is referencing Timothy's upbringing, and since we talked about Timothy this morning, it's a good way to bring it in. Verse 14 says, "...but as for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The focus that we see in this passage is knowing the Word of God, applying the authority of the Word of God, and then doing it. That is the outline. That is the instructions here. The focus is on how valuable and profitable the word of God is. Now we use this verse theologically because we use it theologically to prove the authority of scripture. And Paul is certainly doing that. He's saying for all scripture is breathed out by God. So he's ascribing authorship to the pages of scripture. And Peter does the same in the sense of saying that holy men of old were moved by the Spirit of God as they began to write, and so you have a reminder of the inspiration and authority of Scripture as Scripture being that which is God-breathed. But here it is fascinating that as Timothy is writing, or as Paul is writing to Timothy, he is saying all Scripture, having been breathed out by God, is not just from God, but it is for you. To know more about God. There's an element in which you and I engage with it here. And that's why Paul doesn't stop at the end of this phrase, all scriptures breathed out by God. He could have said period, but he goes on and says, And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete. It's not lacking something. If you had a resource that wasn't lacking and it told you what you should do and how you should do it, would you not use that resource? Even if it was dusty on the coffee table. The church must have a high view of the Word of God. We must be fed by it. If you have a low view of the Word of God, you will distort, twist, and change the Word of God to fit your various theological presuppositions, and you will cease to have a high view of God, and you will cease to have a high view of Scripture. By the way, a lot of churches are doing that very thing today. It should be no wonder to us when we hear of thousands of churches every year closing, because What we're seeing in them, we're certainly seeing a generational loss, which is something we must be aware of. But we're also seeing a theological drift. And that theological drift is nothing new. We've done it over and over and over throughout church history. And so as we see this theological drift, let us not be those who mistakenly believe that God just isn't paying attention. The Lord is not mocked. And his church doing the mocking is not acceptable, so churches close. But we also recognize that turning over to Matthew's gospel, Jesus is is instructing and teaching in Matthew chapter four. Matthew chapter four, and these are general principles, not just for the church, uh, but come and be, come before the church. Actually, is. Jesus is being tempted, he's in the wilderness, and Satan is tempting him, and Jesus says something that you and I should pay attention to in the temptations and the lures of Satan that we studied this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he says, the tempter has come to him, verse 3, and if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, verse 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are fed by the Word of God. All of it. Including those passages that you don't like. Those passages that are hard. Those passages that pinpoint a sin in your life or maybe a theological presupposition that you held that's incorrect. We must be fed by the Word of God. We should not hunt and peck for parts of it that we like and we must be those that let the Word of God teach us and instruct us and change us as we're trained by the Word of God. We must have a high view of the authority of Scripture. We also must have faithful doctrine. This is one of the purposes of the church, faithful doctrine. And we turn back to 1 Timothy here. 1 Timothy, we are going to move through somewhat rapidly. And by the way, I can expand on any of these and all of these for us, but I think we get the idea... If we need to spend more time on them, we will in the future. But this is just to establish the structure for us again. We're to have a high view of God, the authority of Scripture, and faithful doctrine. These are the purposes of the church. In avoiding, or rather in having faithful doctrine, we must avoid false doctrine. And so we start there, avoiding false doctrine. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and listen to the directness, as Paul calls this out, to Timothy. He warns Timothy of this. He says this in verse 3 of chapter 1, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Timothy, we want you to pastor Ephesus. And in pastoring Ephesus, your first job is to go after those false teachers and stand in their way. Don't let them teach false doctrine. Can you imagine poor Timothy? (laughs) You want me to do what? I thought I was joining the pastoral ministry to preach. You are. You'll do that too. But you're going to find the false teachers and you're going to stand in front of them. And you're going to tell them that they're wrong. How many of us, just for a moment, like to be told we're wrong? We'll find any way to justify our right. We'll hurt other people to justify the fact that we believe we're right which also causes pastor stress, by the way. (laughs) We will do that, and Timothy was called to stand in the way of those who are wrong. The church must be about, must have its structure as faithful doctrine. Go to verse 10 of the same chapter. Paul gets even more direct. He says this, the sexual immoral... Men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And let's go back to understand where he was supposed to do with this. He says, This. Um, Verse 6, certain persons have swerved from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding, either with what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And he says, Timothy, stand against those. And they're going to be liars, perjurers, homosexuals, sexually immoral, and everything else that's contrary to sound doctrine. Does that not sound as if somebody could have been told that today? Pastors, elders, you've been told that today. We stand in the way of false doctrine. Paul instructs Timothy. And as he does so, it's extremely relevant for you and I today. Hold fast. To faithful doctrine. We need to speed up. Let's go to chapter 4 and we'll see the other side of it. We're to stand against false doctrine. We go to the other side, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. If you put these things, that is, uh, let's go back up, verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith of the good doctrine that you have followed. Paul says, stay in the word, Timothy. Stay in the word. Be faithful there. Skip down. Skip down as well as we look in verses 13 and 16. It says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Timothy, stay firm in the Word of God. If you want to obey chapter 1, you need to obey chapter 4. If you want to obey chapter 1 and stand firm against the false teaching, you will stay firm in the Scriptures. And the church must do the same. The church must have faithful doctrine. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It is not pleasant to stand against false teaching. It is not. It comes with a cost. Because those who are engaged in false teaching are liars and perjurers, You can imagine what happens when liars and perjurers stand on the other side when you stand opposed to them. And there's a lot of Christians who will listen to the perjurers over the sound teaching of the word of God. But the faithful church will reject the false doctrine, even when they don't like it. And their pastors and their elders will stand firm Two. the church must be about faithful doctrine that is our purpose we rely on the pulpit to tell us the truth of what God thinks the world's voices will tell you what the that the church is outdated that it's archaic but Timothy and every pastor of every church must listen to Paul's instructions we are not called to cultural appeasement. We were called to keep a close watch on ourselves and on the teaching. And so pastors who are here, elders who are here, this is a high calling. In a few months, you'll all be voting on a new board. And we have two elders coming off and we're hoping to have three more coming on and help offset our numbers as we have been down a little bit in our elder board and those men who are coming on as new elders be in prayer for them you don't even know them by name yet you know them but you don't know who they are yet be in prayer that God would equip this fellowship with faithful elders who stand firm for this structural purpose of the church we need that we need that moving forward we recognize spiritual authority and this is Uh, Perhaps the most important of these, spiritual authority, and the last one there is, uh, we'll see in just a minute, but spiritual authority is this very important truth, perhaps the most of the five. Who's your head? Turn over to the book of Ephesians. We know the answer to this, but it's important for us to see it because sometimes we believe that we're the head. And it doesn't matter who you are in the church, whether it's actually stated or passively stated, many times we believe we're the head. We like to tell other people what to do, but you're not the head. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, Scripture says, and he, that is the Father, speaking of Christ, put all things under his feet and gave him his head over the church, or gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Turn over to chapter four, verse fifteen, as well. Four fifteen. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head, and to Christ. So we have a responsibility as a body of believers to recognize who our head is, and then we have a responsibility to grow up and to be mature. Growing into the body of Christ. But this is extremely important because knowing who we are in Christ gives clarity to the church's foundation. If you don't know who you are in Christ, you don't know who you serve. And if you don't know who you serve, you wind up serving you. And that is what has happened over and over and over in millions of lives throughout the church's history. As we began to serve me. This is especially acute in the Western culture, where we are consumers, consumeristic in every way, and we make the church about us. Turn over to Ephesians two, verses seventeen through twenty-two, and listen carefully. This is one that you want to write down. There's so much here. In fact, we were talking a little bit, Pastor Toonstra and I were talking a little bit after our prayer a few moments ago, and. Uh, the in my office before the service started about chapter three. So chapter three is very critical as well to understanding the church. Spend time there as well. So write three chapter three down. But Ephesians chapter two verses seventeen through twenty two, and listen. Just listen to what Paul says. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both, or through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. Loved, your head is the one who assembles you into the body of Christ, he places you where you need to be through the ministry of the Spirit of God. The church is an organism, and Paul is given that imagery here and more in chapter 3 and in other places. There's this imagery of being fit together, and the foundation is Christ and the apostles and prophets, studying Christ in 1 Corinthians and the apostles and prophets, and Christ is the cornerstone. The image of the cornerstone, by the way, is a brilliant image of who Christ is for the church. The cornerstone is the first stone that is laid. We don't necessarily build this way today, although we do see it in some structures, but uh, the cornerstone is really the point in which everything else is measured. When you start building a house, it's a really bad idea to build it on the setbacks, in case you don't know that. Uh, You want to build the house so that it is not on the setbacks. So you want to find the corner post The place that starts as intended, away from the setbacks so that the rest of the house doesn't wind up on the setbacks, but it's also very important that everything is built square from there. If you don't build it square from that point, the rest of the house is a disaster. The rest of the structure is weakened because the cornerstone is not laid the way the cornerstone is supposed to be laid. The picture of the cornerstone is an important image of Christ. And we must recognize that you are not the cornerstone. You are not the rule by which every measurement in the house must be made. Christ is. Christ is. So get out of the way. I say that pastorally, I say that lovingly, but I say that in a challenging way. Get out of the way. Don't be that which by everything must be measured in the church, because Christ is the cornerstone. And it requires, interestingly enough, submission to godly, earthly leaders. We're going to dwell on this more later, but I want us to turn over for just a brief moment to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and begin in verse 12. The Scripture there says in First Thessalonians 5:12, "We ask you brothers, and he's speaking to the church in the book that we're studying on Sunday morning, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idols. Those who are not working, encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. Be patient with them all. Isn't it fascinating that Christ, who is the cornerstone, who is the head of the church, has appointed earthly leaders by which we are to follow him through. I say that to say this. In the church, in the structure of the church, there are no lone wolf Christians. You cannot operate separately and independently of a church. You cannot operate separately and outside of the scope of local leaders of the church. And by the way, it's not a local church until there are local leaders. It's fascinating that Paul is writing this to the Thessalonians. Why? Because they're three weeks old. They're young, and Paul instructs them to listen to their godly leaders. They're a brand new fledgling church. Paul was only among them for three weeks, and a few weeks later, he sent them this letter. They're very, very young, and Paul still calls them a church because of their leadership. Beloved, we have one more, but we are out of time. Uh, for tonight. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to encourage you to spend some more time in one passage that we have not yet covered. And I'm going to turn there briefly. I'm just going to mention it. I'm going to cut it real short. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'm actually going to have you go back to chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, and study it. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We must be those who are concerned about personal holiness. And if that means we forgo our coffee in the auditorium of the church during worship services, then by all means, we forgo the coffee. Because it's just coffee. And we are concerned about our holiness before God. Holiness and legalism seem to go hand in hand. It seems as if we, in our effort in the pursuit of holiness, are quick to go into legalism. And so I caution you on that. We're going to come back to that in our study. But I caution you, don't go there. Go back to chapter 6 and in the next week, spend time in verses 14 through 18 and see what it is that are the promises that Paul picks up on in chapter 7, verse 1. You may have the personal conviction of no more coffee. Amen. Praise God. Live holy lives. Be careful not to force your convictions on somebody else. But for you, that may be your conviction. And live by it. There's a lot more we could say and I plan to say on this issue of personal holiness, but I promise you we will return in the next several weeks together. We have five, five structural components, five purposes of the church It is the purpose of the church to have a high view of God. Let us have a high view of God. Let us also be those who establish it as our purpose. And you will notice, by the way, as you look at our vision, mission, and values as a church, that these five are all there. These five are all present in those statements. You will notice that we have a high view of God mentioned there. You will notice that we have a high purpose of the authority of Scripture as we have it in these 66 books. You will notice that we have as a purpose an intentional desire to maintain faithfully solid doctrine. That is our purpose. You will notice that we recognize that Christ is our head and that he administers his church through godly local leaders. And you will also see elements of this final purpose of personal holiness. We will get into issues of church discipline and all of that in the days to come because that is how the church exercises the authorization of correction in the life of its believers. Beloved, we have a lot to learn on the church. And so far, you probably have said, well, this doesn't sound anything like what I thought it was going to sound like. I actually hope that that's the case. Not because you haven't heard it before, but because it's a realignment of what the church really is. It's so easy for us to be brought in to this consumeristic society and say, you know what, I want the temperature of the church to be a perfect 71.8. And I want the coffee to not be too hot or too cold. And I want the preaching to feel good. And I want the music to be exactly the kind that I want. And I want it all to be live streamed so that at my convenience I can go back and see it again. We live in a consumeristic world. None of those things. If you like the house set at 71.5 degrees, amen. Bless you. I'm glad you don't live in my house. But that may be yours. Amen. But in the fellowship of the saints of the body of Christ... Let us be those who endeavor to live out these five purposes. We'll get to the bones, or we'll get to the sinew and the flesh of all this later as we add those to the bones. But these are our five purposes. Let us close tonight in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we have learned much about the structure of the church tonight. Maybe not learning it for the first time but really spending a few moments to digest how it works in the body of Christ. Lord, we've spent a considerable amount of time here this evening, and I praise you for the patience of your saints as we have worked through it. But I pray that these five things would resonate in their life, both now and in the week to come. That as we fill in fellowship and edification and sanctification and worship, and all of these other components that do make up the church, that we would recognize that these five are the bones upon which everything else is built. Lord, first and foremost, we want to have a high view of you. And then we want to recognize Christ as our head. These other structural supports are key and important, but those two stand above the others. So I pray that we'd be found faithful and obedient in worshiping and following you. That as a church, we would divest ourselves from our own ambitions and our own wants and our selfish desires to do what we want to do. That we'd recognize the authorities that you have placed, that we'd humbly submit there, that we would pray for them. That you would cause them to be godly men of character, of renown, who faithfully lead this fellowship in these other three areas that we have discussed. So Lord, we ask your blessing as we depart from here. We have much to learn and we pray that you'd bring us back safely next week unless you call us home. And then we look forward and long for the day in which we are called home to be with our Savior for all of eternity. So Lord, we give you the glory and the honor as we depart from here, keep us safe and And allow us to be found faithful and obedient and living out what we've learned here tonight. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.